When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Lexicon Valley is sponsored by The Great Courses, with engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Language A to Z. Get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. And by Blue Apron. Blue Apron sends gourmet recipes and all the fresh ingredients you need to make them right to your door. Visit blueapron.com slash lexicon to get your first two meals free. That's blueapron.com slash lexicon. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number Chijinda, titled Ma'ath Chamarun Jelajak Vejvin, wherein we talk to the guy who invented the language that I just attempted to speak. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. It is currently the middle of the fifth season, Bob, of Game of Thrones, which I'm guessing you've never seen. Well, not in the sense of having viewed it, <laughs> but I've heard of it. You've heard you of know, it. It's all the kids talk about these days. Right. Well, that's because you won't watch anything that isn't rooted in strict reality. Is that right? You won't watch anything with superheroes or zombies or vampires or mm-hmm. fantasy really of any kind. That's correct. No sci-fi, no post-apocalyptic drama. It's just that my suspension of disbelief is not so willing. Although, you know, if you think about it, it really makes no sense because the fiction, cinematic or literary that I read is just as made up as Game of Thrones. It's just as not true, but... I just cannot get caught up in anything where people are wearing latex, basically. <laughs> or wearing cod pieces. No, I don't do you cod don't do pieces. You don't do cod pieces. I mean, in my personal life, perhaps, but right. uh, not in my TV viewing. Well, for those who don't know anything about Game of Thrones, it is a Byzantinely plotted, richly populated fictional world set in a kind of Middle Ages-esque environment where these series of great families with long lineages vie for power. It has court intrigue and swordplay and incest and prostitution and castration and decapitation and straight sex and gay sex. It's like a weekend at the Garfields. (laughs) 
It's interesting because, unless I'm mistaken, you didn't mention bickering, but in any event. <laughs> There's that yeah, too. Yeah, I get it. Uh, to me, it sounds like a full frontal Lord of the Rings, you know, which is the Tolkien series that I uh, could never get into even when I was uh, a young teenager. Just never had the interest in the fantasy uh, genre. Frodo lives. So what Game of Thrones also has is one of the most, I guess you would say, famous invented languages in recent years. It's a language called Dothraki, which is spoken by a people who are also known as the Dothraki. Now, Dothraki people, just to give you a kind of thumbnail sketch of who they are, you might liken them to, say, the Mongols from actual history. They are a nomadic, very proud, patriarchal, warrior culture who travel on horseback. So again, like the Garfields. <laughs> exactly. It's amazing. You, you know, you've, you hit the essence of it. So the television show Game of Thrones is adapted from a series of books by not J.R.R. Tolkien, but George R.R. R. Martin. And in those books, there appear only several dozen, I believe, words in the Dothraki language. That's it. Now, when HBO developed the books into this big-budget television series, it had the ambition to build out Dothraki, I guess you'd say, into a full-blown language so that characters could carry on dialogue in it. Yeah. Well, you know what strikes me as extraordinary about this? If you've ever been to a Hollywood studio and you walk through these streets, and some of them are quite familiar because you've seen them in one or 40 movies— by and large, they're just scenery. They're not actual dwellings and because there's no need for them to be. They only have to work as exteriors. One wonders why you need to actually build out the superstructure of an entire language if you can get by with just the facade. Bob, you're right. I mean, in the movies, these are largely Potemkin villages. They don't need to have interiors. But to answer your question... Why build out the language? It adds an air of authenticity to this made-up world. It becomes a richer, more textured, more immersive experience for the viewer. And I would argue it's similar to the reason that, say, Francis Ford Coppola had De Niro speak Italian for large portions of The Godfather Part Two. Well, Sicilian, actually, but <laughs> yeah, I he, take your point. He spoke, right, Southern dialect. Only it was easy in that case because Italian was a real language that existed. In this case, Dothraki was not. So if Coppola was going for verisimilitude, is Game of Thrones going for fake-a-similitude? What, what? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's allowing you, well, not you, because you have trouble suspending disbelief in a world like this, but it allows me, for example, to become more engaged with this place called Westeros, which is the entire universe, say, of Game of Thrones. If they speak in Dothraki, how do we know what they're saying? Is it subtitled? Yes, exactly. It's subtitled. So HBO put out a call, essentially, when they were first developing the show to linguists and others and held a contest. They said, given the little you know of Dothraki from the books, create a language for us one that is substantial enough that we could translate our dialogue 
from English into Dothraki and have our actors speak it, right? So they got about 25 or 30 submissions, and the winner was a guy named David J. Peterson, who we're going to talk to in a few minutes. Now, a language, of course, is more than just vocabulary. It's a set of rules for how to string together that vocabulary into intelligible speech. And as fluent speakers of English, we don't, in general, think about things like subject-verb agreement or the way we add L-Y to turn many adjectives into adverbs. We just do it. Yeah, we feel it kind of like our, our sense of balance. Right. It took centuries, though, of evolution for English to arrive at this point in time where we are now speaking it as we're speaking it. Now, imagine if you were tasked with creating a language that has or endeavors to have the detail and rigor of a natural language like English. Where do you begin? Well, I begin with Esperanto because somebody's already taken care of that for me. It's fully regular, and it employs some of the roots of the Romance languages and, and quite a bit of their grammar, and was meant to be the lingua franca for the world, except that English kind of usurped its role. But, hell, that's where I'd start. Esperanto is a good example, because that's a language that was, as you suggested, created and modeled after existing languages, right? I think you know almost all of the roots are Romance language roots, the thought being that it would be easier for Western Europeans and English speakers who are familiar with a lot of those roots, easier for us to all learn it and have it become a universal language. But David Peterson, he didn't have that, right? He didn't have this whole series of other languages on which to build his new language. In fact, even if he had them at his disposal, he couldn't have used them because they wouldn't have sounded as exotic and fantastic as they need to sound in a fantasy realm, right? I'm certain his brief was to have it sound as unfamiliar as possible. Which brings me back to my original question, where do you begin? Before we get Peterson on the line to answer that question, I want to mention that Lexicon Valley is sponsored by The Great Courses, which are a series of lectures on any of 500-plus topics for people who consider themselves lifelong learners. The course that I've been featuring, because I love it so much, is called Language A to Z by John McWhorter. McWhorter teaches linguistics at Columbia University, and he chooses a word beginning with each of the letters of the alphabet and then uses those words as a way to talk about language concepts. So, for example, in the episode T is for Tone, McWhorter talks about tonal languages, which are really difficult for English speakers to even comprehend. Imagine a single word meaning five, six, or more different things depending on the tone with which you say it. It's mind-boggling for those of us who speak languages that don't do that. McWhorter explains not only how tonal languages work, but also why and how they came to be at all. Even more fascinating, people who speak tonal languages, and about half the world's languages are tonal in some way, people who speak those languages have a greater facility for music and are more likely to have perfect pitch than those of us who don't. 
you can order this course, Language A to Z, or other of their best-selling courses at up to 80% off the original price. So give it a shot. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. That's thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. Okay, Peterson is on the line. Hey, David, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. David, I want to start back at that original contest. You had to come up with a language. You got some instructions from you know a combination of HBO and the Language Creation Society, which is a nonprofit that kind of issued the application that you would have to fill out and submit. What were your instructions? What did you have to go on? Initially, the application for Dothraki was fairly simple in that what we had to do was translate some materials that had been provided to us. And these were things that were from the pilot script, but not the entire pilot script. And then provide whatever other notes we wanted to provide, which meant that the application was entirely open-ended, which resulted in a lot of us putting a lot of time and effort into the application. I mean, for that first round, this was a two-round process. For the first round, I produced about 180 pages of material. Whoa. That was in about two weeks. Okay, so 180 pages. You said that took you about two weeks. What did you do on day one? Like, where did you start? Those who were a part of the application process, we were able to communicate with one another. And one of the applicants decided very early on to drop out. And so what he did is he provided us with his notes. And he had gone through all of the original four books and taken down every single word that was supposed to be in Dothraki. And some that were marginal, that is, he couldn't tell if they were supposed to be from Dothraki or a different language. That was the entirety of the Dothraki language at that point. 56 words, and 24 of those were names. And that was nice that he was able to do that because something that ultimately all of us would have had to have done. But this way, we all had it. We all had a, a base to start from. How many are we all? Were there five groups doing this or individuals, 500? It started out at about 40. A lot of people dropped out because it was just too intense. Okay, so you're working on your own. And so you have these 50-some-odd words from the books that are ostensibly in Dothraki. Mm -hmm. What do you do now with these words in order to begin to create a language? The first step was uh, determining the phonological character of the words and coming up with a sound system. And I did that, you know, before even worrying about grammar, because that's the usual way I create languages anyway. I start with a sound system or the phonology. The only difference was instead of creating it whole cloth, which is what I was used to doing, I had to determine what the phonology was based on these words and names that had been made available to us. And when you say phonology, that means, of course, the literal sounds that exist in the language, in the words that are spoken in the language. There are many sounds that humans are able to make with their mouth and tongue and other parts of their throat. So you have to figure out what sounds do the Dothraki people make in order to produce language. That's correct. And not just what the sounds are, but which sounds are going to be important for making a difference in meaning. Like uh, in English, ta and da are pretty much treated like the same sound, but they're both a part of the system. We use one in the word stall and the other one in the word tall. They're two different sounds, but we treat them the same. So I had to figure that out. And then also 
what constitutes a licit syllable in Dothraki, what types of sounds and combinations of sounds can begin a word, what combinations of sounds can end a word, and then what the stress pattern is going to be. So this is all based on the building blocks of those 50-some odd words in the books. So there's three analogies that spring to mind. Tell me which is the best. Mm -hmm. One is the Rosetta Stone. Another is forensic anthropology where, you know, you have a skull or something and you have to figure out what all of the tendons, muscles, you know, and, and, and flesh look like on top of that skull. And the third is cloning, you know, where you might have a single cell and you have to use that to recreate the entire organism. Is any of those a convenient metaphor? I suppose the second is a forensic anthropology, except, uh, you know, coming from a background in linguistics, I think more of field work. You typically work with a consultant who is a fluent speaker of a language, and you usually start out just eliciting words, and you ask them, what's the word for this? And they tell you, and you transcribe it as best you can. And then once you've got a set of them, you have to sit there and look at them and figure out, okay, what's the phonology of this language? What constitutes a, an acceptable coda consonant? What can start words and so on? The only difference is that once I had my list of words and I was able to determine the phonological character of the language, I could then step back and say, where do I see gaps here? What do I want to add? So in other words, you could create sounds that didn't necessarily exist in these 50-some-odd words. Yes. In, in fact, I just created one. I think the only one that, that I found that was missing that I thought should be there is ch. So that was, I think, the only sound I added to Dothraki. And then once you did that, you satisfied yourself that, okay, this is a complement of sounds that I could now build out into a large vocabulary and a grammar and an entire language. Yeah, because there were actually quite a, a diverse number of sounds present in the words already there. You know, the stops were all there. There was already a, an acceptable bevy of fricatives. And then just the usual, what you would expect from the uh, sonorants. There were only four vowels in the system, a, e, i, and o, and I liked that. Of course, one of my favorite languages is Arabic that only has three vowels. And I thought that especially a four-vowel system that has O instead of U was unique. And so I thought, all right, let's, let's just keep it that way. Can I just interject to say that when you do write your memoir, and I assume it's coming right up, that it be titled, An Acceptable Bevy of Fricatives? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Just by way of contrast, English has both of those O vowel sounds that you just mentioned, right? O and U, yeah. English is an outlier when it comes to its number of vowels. Most languages have between five and seven. You know, Spanish has five. English has something like, at least my variety of English, I think, has 14, 16. It's got maybe more than that. There are a few languages that are claimed to have two vowels, ah and uh, and they all are in the Caucasus Mountains. But uh, there's fierce debate surrounding the number of vowels in those languages. Anyway, it just seemed to work for Dothraki. So developing out this phonological system, let's say that is day, you know, one and a half or two of mm -hmm. this two-week period of you putting together this application. What then do you do next? After the sound system is set, next I typically want to go into the inflectional systems for verbs and nouns. They do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to grammar. And so usually at that point, I come up with a set of test words. 
So when you say inflectional system, you mean like making a verb past tense, like in English we add ed, inflectional system for nouns, meaning how do you make them plural, things like that. You're doing two things. Not only are you trying to figure out the form of whatever inflectional categories you've created, you're figuring out what the inflectional categories are, what you want them to be. So with Dothraki, I created a couple of test words. And in fact, I was using a, uh, my little sister who was eight at the time, she had these little Winnie the Pooh flippy notebooks. And I had one for some reason. So that was where I started. I started in that thing. And I created a couple of test words. I created a word for, I think, apple, man, and horse. And then started to put them into sentences to figure out, all right, exactly what am I going to do with this language? And early, I determined that I wanted the language to have noun case. Now, what noun case is, is you change the form of the noun to indicate what its grammatical role is in the sentence. We have a very tiny little bit of it in English where you say something like, I saw him, you don't say me saw he. And the reason you don't is because the form of the pronoun has to change if it's the object of the verb. But by and large, we don't have case in English, unlike, say, Latin. So in other words, if a noun is being used as the subject or an object or a kind of possessive, the ending of the noun will change depending on its role. Yeah, exactly. Or sometimes, depending on the the language, it'll be the front of the noun that changes. So... With Dothraki, two things early on I determined that I wanted just because one is I didn't want to have articles because articles are always just a headache. Whatever language has an article, it never works the same way in two languages. Like the articles in English don't work the same as the articles in German, don't work the same as the articles in French, which don't work the same as the articles in Spanish. There are always these little nooks and crannies of grammar that just really bother me as a language learner. So I just wanted to get rid of that. So there would be no articles. And I decided I wanted to have case because I don't think any of the languages that have been created for, you know, like television or, or movie series had case. And I thought, well, it's, that's unfortunate. Though I, I worked with a comparatively small system, just uh, five cases. It also has gender, right? Which is something, again, that English does not really have. Right, yeah, it has a gender system, but a different kind of gender system. So nouns and and even pronouns in Dothraki don't distinguish between masculine and feminine or anything like that. Instead, they distinguish between animate and inanimate, which means that, for example, men, women, children, etc., they fall into one gender or class, that being the animate, and things like rocks and dirt fall into the other class, which would be inanimate, and they're treated differently by the grammar. Gotcha. Wow. So you you really made things kind of complicated for yourself because gender systems and case systems, while they exist in many, many languages, they are an added element that will complicate your building out of the language because you then have to take these declensions and conjugations into consideration. Yes, but with every innovation or difference in a language... There's always pros and cons. You gain something and you lose something. So, for example, with cases I discovered, the nice thing is that once you learn the cases, which I know is a bit of a trick, but once you learn them, then you've got them for all your nouns and you have to rely less often on satellite particles, be they uh, prepositions or postpositions. Mm -hmm. You can do more with just the noun than you can in a language that lacks cases like English. Right. There's an economy of usage of words when you 
have these cases because you can dispense with these possessive particles like his and her and things like that. Right, exactly. I'm seeing this language come alive now. It's starting to blossom before my eyes here as you're describing it. But then there is just the very real and practical problem of coming up with words for things, right? I mean, every language, of course, is built on a structure, on a template of this grammar, but the nuts and bolts are like, okay, what's the word for that thing over there? That looks like a mountain in English, but I don't know what it's called in Dothraki. You then have to invent a vocabulary. Right. And the vocabulary is, of course, what's going to take the longest amount of time, conceivably your entire life. Natural languages have hundreds of thousands of words. Even those with comparatively smaller vocabularies have at least, you know, a couple hundred thousand words. Dothraki, which is my largest language, has 4,000 at the moment. I don't think I could ever expand the vocabulary to have even 100,000 words. I would love to have 10,000, but it takes a long time because especially the way that I create words in the way that I create languages is I start with uh, the oldest form of the language or the oldest form of the language that's relevant and then I build up from that. So all the words that I create, each of them have their own etymologies, have their own sound changes and then have a variety of meanings because of course there are very few words in any language where the word has exactly one meaning. Usually they have a kind of locus or network of meanings that get used in a variety of contexts. And uh, as a language creator, you have to be cognizant of that and to reproduce that. Let me make sure I understand this correctly. So what you're suggesting is that not only are you creating the Dothraki language as it's spoken and as we hear it on Game of Thrones, that's sort of the tip of the iceberg. And underneath that waterline is your version of the Dothraki language as it exists in, say, Uh, to use an analogy, Middle English and Old English. So you're creating a kind of cultural linguistic history for the language as well? Yeah, that's correct. So Dothraki, its old form, which I just call proto-planes, differed in a number of very specific ways. It produced some of the oddities of Dothraki, including the accusative for inanimate nouns, which looks like you just lop off the last vowel, and that produces the accusative, which is a little odd for a language. But all of it has its roots in kind of this older form of the language and the sound changes that happened there. For example, Dothraki used to have seven vowels and it used to have an extra case. And the loss of these central vowels kind of led to the the collapse of that early case. And it affected a couple of really interesting changes that affected inanimate nouns but did not affect animate nouns, which ended up producing the the bizarre split that you see in modern Dothraki. (laughs) Holy moly. David, this gets to something that Mike and I were speculating about before we got you on the line. That is, if you're creating a language for a TV series, why dig a foundation? Why not just build it on a slab? Why not just use a facade and flats? Why do you have to build whole structures and uh, substructures, isn't that more than anybody viewing the series will ever be able to detect? By the way, I'm accepting all high fives for saying build a foundation instead of just on a slab. That is, that is a perfect analogy. But anyway, please do go on. There are a couple of different answers to this. First of all, the way that I looked at it, when I was originally applying, what I knew was that 
George R. R. Martin had written four books and had a huge fan base. The show had nothing. So everything that I was doing, I saw myself as doing it for the fans of the books. And of course, if you're a book reader as opposed to a show watcher, there are entire websites dedicated to the internal histories of George R. R. Martin's books, you know, speculations about who's going to do what and family trees and maps and the whole bit. And so that was one concern. The other concern is that it's easier to create a more faithful result. It's easier to get a language that looks and sounds realistic if you go in and you do the history. You can try to do it just by creating a facade, just by building on the slab, so to speak. But it's actually harder and more work to get a naturalistic result. And especially that this was going to be the first time that a language creator had been hired to create a language. Those thousands of us who have been creating languages for fun for years, and this was going to be the first opportunity that somebody from that tradition was going to get to show what they could do. I wanted to do the best possible job I could. Was there anyone from the society or your, your family or from HBO or anywhere in your life, including your eight-year-old sister, who was saying, dude, scale it back. This is unnecessary dimension. You're going to drive yourself and us crazy. I mean, did, was this Moby Dick? <laughs> I don't think so. First of all, I didn't even tell my family what I was doing because if I hadn't gotten this job, like that would have been it for me. I would have never created another language again for the rest of my life. I put way too much work into that application. But for the show, when it comes to actually working on the show, nobody needs to know about any of that detail but me. You know, the actors just see the sounds that they need to say and they get the recordings, which they mimic. And then the writers just need to create the dialogue, write whatever dialogue they're going to write, and see that they're getting a translation. They know basically that I'm there to provide all the depth. They don't need to necessarily know every detail. Lexicon Valley is also sponsored by Blue Apron, which is a new service that delivers all the ingredients you need to make incredible meals at home. These are farm-fresh ingredients that are perfectly portioned and come with a very simple, easy-to-follow recipe card so you can create a delicious meal in about 35 minutes or less. Some of the meals they offer are Thai chicken meatballs with red coconut curry and bok choy, and one that I would choose, macadamia-crusted cod with black rice and golden beet salad. Discover a better way to cook. Visit blueapron.com slash lexicon to get your first two meals free. That's blueapron.com slash lexicon. So given that there is this rigorous depth to this language and it's there because you want it to be there, are there ever times when you get a script from the writer's and you go about trying to translate something from English into Dothraki, and you just kind of get stuck on a word, and you just think, like, it doesn't feel like it belongs. In other words, are there some words that have given you more trouble than others? The simple answer is yes, but actually, for Dothraki, it wasn't too bad. And I'll tell you specifically why. So Dothraki really, uh, if you look at the books for George R. R. Martin, Dothraki only factors into the first three or so. And even there, it's really the first two. What I was doing during the application process, and then in the six months that followed when we waited to see if 
this was going to get picked up to series. I read the books and I looked in particular at all the scenes where the Dothraki were going to be used and I anticipated the vocabulary that I was going to need. Mm-hmm. And so I had plenty of time to work just on my own and spend as much time as I wanted creating just the right words in just the right way. By contrast, as soon as I was hired to create High Valyrian, in fact, even before that, when I was asked to create uh, languages for Defiance, suddenly I didn't have that lead time. High Valyrian is another language that you created for Game of Thrones, and Defiance is an unrelated television show. Correct. That you're also working on and creating a language for. Yeah, and I'll give you uh, one example. So High Valyrian, for those that aren't familiar with the shows... High Valyrian is an entirely unrelated language to Dothraki. It's a dead language. It's spoken by a people who have been destroyed, but their language has survived. And it's spoken as kind of a literary language or liturgical language by people all over. There are a lot of people who understand it. And then there are a number of languages that have descended from it, which are used for everyday communication. I had to create the High Valyrian language because one of the characters, Daenerys, speaks it fluently. Her entire family does. They passed it down from generation to generation. They're from that destroyed culture. And then Daenerys was going to be going to a place where the people there spoke a language that was descended from this language as well. So I'll give you one example. From season three of Game of Thrones... I had to translate a line in the descended language, which I call Astapori Valyrian. You know, just the sentence, uh, they have yet to kill their sucklings. I can't even tell you how many times I've said that. Yeah. And in particular, it's this word have that was really difficult. Because in the older language, in High Valyrian, there is simply a verb tense that handled both the regular uh, immediate past tense and also what we call the anterior which is this have form that is a past action with present relevance. Mm -hmm. And that's also known in English as the present perfect, right? Yes. It's kind of confusing because in English it's known as the perfect, whereas in linguistics the perfect is actually the simple past tense. It gets really confusing even for me. Mm -hmm. But in High Valyrian, if you wanted to say something like um, he ate or he has eaten, it's exactly the same word. Ipratas. That's how you'd say that. And so it's very simple to translate things like that. There's just no distinction. In Low Valyrian, though, I felt there really ought to be a distinction, and there wasn't at the time. And so what I needed to do was create an interior construction that did not exist previously. In order to do this, of course, I had to go back and start with High Valyrian, because that's the language that this descended from. So you have the verb urnegon which means to see. And then you could create a construction in High Valyrian, which means something like, um, something saw him to do X. And then this word itself, which would have been something like hurnegon, uh, underwent a series of sound changes so that it became, in Low Valyrian, something like honesco. It had to be made into the passive form. And so then you get something like uh, they have yet to kill their sucklings. It's kind of like they were not seen to have done this is what it would meant in the oldest form of language. Now it just means have, basically. 
And so that entire process of creating that construction, it was like five or six hours, and it was just for this one part of this one line. This is mind-boggling to me, David. I'm not quite sure how to describe my reaction to this, because the detail that you're describing and the efforts to achieve that detail are kind of awe-inspiring, and yet its utility is so limited, I don't know whether I'm, I'm looking at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel or a ship in a bottle. I once saw a model of an aircraft carrier in extraordinary detail, exquisite detail, made out of Lego bricks. And it was simultaneously magnificent and tragic because I looked at it and said, whoa, why? Tell me how I should react to the fruits of your labors. Is it magnificent or is it a ship in a bottle? You know, before I was interested in, in language creation, the thing that interested me the most was writing. And in particular, the, the works that I loved the most, they were the big ones, the lengthy ones. I have a fondness for 19th century Russian literature. And when I came to language creation, I just looked at it as the same type of endeavor. And I always believed that created languages were art pieces. And in that regard, the creation is its own reward. I think the satisfaction that I get from it is not so much people speaking it or wanting to speak it or use it, but people going back over and looking at the choices I made, looking at the grammar, and understanding not just the effort that went into it, but the artistic thought behind it. I look at each language as roughly the equivalent of, of a novel, you know, something like the manuscript found at Saragossa. And that is the way I think that created languages should be appreciated, despite the fact that you can't just sit down and read them the way you can a novel. I know it's tough to engage, but that's the way I think about it. Hearing you say that, David, I wonder if you're possessive of your creations. Something like Dothraki, because of the popularity of the television show, if it has not already, will ultimately get away from you. Once you're long gone, people may or may not continue to tinker with it, add on to it. Are you happy to have your languages free and out there? Or do you feel like these are mine, hands off? I think as long as I'm able to put together my own document of what the language is that lives on my computer, that uh, even if it's under an NDA now, you know, sometime when I'm dead, you know, I'm sure those PDFs will get out there. As long as that's still out there in some form, then I'm fine with it. You know, who knows what's going to happen to George R. R. Martin's franchise after Game of Thrones is done. But, you know, let's say 40 years from now, somebody says, okay, this is what Westeros is going to look like once it hits something that's equivalent to the 20th century in that world. And then some language creator is hired to create modern versions of all the languages I created. I think that'd be great. You know, I would love to see what they came up with. Now, at the end of every show, I say to Mike, later, Gator, can you come up with anything in Dothraki that's roughly a translation of that? There is no word for alligator in Dothraki. Now's your opportunity to create one. Well, maybe, but I have to go and look up the distribution of alligators. I'm not sure where alligators live happily, 
if they would come into contact with the Dothraki regularly, or if they would just come into contact with them when they travel out somewhere. In which case, I'll need to decide if there should be a native term for alligator and Dothraki, or if it should be a borrowed term from some other language. And then I'll need to determine which language, basically based on where alligators live. I know, I know what I can do. I know what I can do. Give me just one second. While you're thinking up a translation for a later gator, let me ask you one final question. You said that if you had not won the contest to create Dothraki, that you would never have created another language again. Do you think now this is it for you? This is what you will be doing for the rest of your life? I don't think that there's enough opportunities out there for it to be sustainable. I'd be fine with it if it were. Things have been going pretty well the past few years. I also imagine, though, that for those languages that I have created, I'll be working on them for the rest of my life, even if there's no more fan base for it. Yeah, I love these things. and I'll, I'll just keep working them till they get to a point where I'm satisfied with them. Right now, they're all works in progress. Thanks so much, David. David, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. If you want to write in with your thoughts of the Dothraki language, please do so at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Please follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley and subscribe to Lexicon Valley in iTunes. Joel Meyer is our managing producer. Andy Bowers, our executive producer. All right, Mikey, are we done here? Yeah, we're done. All right, uh, David, I think this is where uh, Rocky comes in. Buenas check, je matek. Took the words right out of my mouth. Hey, this is Brian Koppelman. I host the Slate podcast, The Moment. I love Lexicon Valley. I love words. I love usage. And this week on my podcast, Brian Garner, editor and author of Garner's Modern American Usage, the book that David Foster Wallace wrote about in Consider the Lobster, and one of the central figures in the debate between being a prescriptivist and a descriptivist, explains why he feels the way he does about words, how he came to love them, and what he stands for now. If you dig Lexicon Valley, I really think you'll dig this week's episode of The Moment.